Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastalk and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to acknowledge International Women's Day, which took place on March 8th. This year's theme is Choose the Challenge, a call to action for challenging and calling out gender bias and inequality, seeking out and celebrating women's achievements and creating an inclusive world. I find this such an important cause, and I'm happy to say that since publishing Project to Product in 2018, I have dedicated all author proceeds to supporting women and minorities in technology. Many of the women whose work has inspired me most have already appeared on this podcast. Celebrating this International Women's Day 2021, I'm thrilled to welcome Robin Yemen, one of the foremost authorities on applying principles of flow and value streams to complex systems of systems. Robin is a senior fellow and agile DevSecOps enterprise coach at Lockheed Martin, and her expertise spans over 25 years in software engineering with a focus on agile DevSecOps, building large complex solutions across multiple domains. Robin tells some amazing stories on this podcast that I think will resonate with anyone who's tried to apply the concepts of agile and DevOps at scale. So with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Project to Product podcast. I'm so happy to be here with Robin Yemen. And Robin and I met around 2015 uh, while she was working on the Orion spacecraft, which is uh, somewhat infamous for, for being the, a way for us to get to Mars at some point. The, and I think even more interestingly is we're now entering this era where we're seeing you know, microservices on planes and value streams in, in space. And I think Robin has been one of the people who has been spearheading the, the thought leader the way to approach uh, working with these kinds of extremely complex systems of systems. So, Robin, welcome. It's it's so great to have you here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've got quite an all-star cast, so I'm, I'm a little bit humbled to be here. Well, I mean, it, it, it's been amazing to have, like, from the people who've been applying the principles that you and I hold you know, so near and dear around flow, around around agile and DevOps and, and value streams. But I think some of what I've seen and you doing and heard you talking about it around applying this in, in this complex a domain where, where safety is critical, where uh, regulations are critical, but where moving fast is is more critical than it's ever been. It's just been fascinating. And I, I do want to let everyone know that uh, you're now actually working on a PhD thesis to help others understand the things that you've learned over the years. So can you just tell us, just before we get started on, on everything, uh, tell us a bit about uh, what's the title of your thesis? Uh, the title of my thesis is How to Deploy Complex System of Systems Using Agile and DevSecOps. And I know that's a, a mouthful, um, but all of the benefits that you get from Agile and DevOps on small applications actually are much larger and even a bigger value at those large complex system of systems. It just requires some some rethinking and, and refactoring to, to do that. And what fascinates me about what you're doing here is in terms of the, these systems of systems, right? You've got tons of software, mixed hardware and software, and you've recognized the need of new ways of deploying software. I would love to, for you to tell us a little bit, but you know, Kubernetes running on a U2, that's, that's something when I, when I saw that uh, cross my feet, I was, I was blown away. And then these extremely complex and critical life cycles, right? We're talking you know, similar to, to commercial airliners where you've got 50, 75 year long product life cycles. So if you could just tell us a little bit about your journey through this, because I think a, a lot of what we've known around this kind of product complexity, this kind of mix 
mixed hardware software and systems complexity, so much of it comes from, from industrial thinking. Where, where you know, Lean originated, but I think the methods that you've been introducing and the, the, the new ways of working and thinking and kind of end-to-end flow and value streams are, are very different than I think the way a lot of leaders in the space think about this. So do you want to just start by telling us a bit about your journey, how you how you got here? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I've been here at Lockheed for about 26 years, so quite a long time working on a variety of domains, right? So I, I started out with uh, submarines and, and displays and had the opportunity to work on Aegis, which is a, a large combat system, moving into supporting things like F-16 and F-22, and then on to, um, as you said, when we tagged up, uh, you know, I was supporting Orion during during their journey. So all large systems, but completely different domains with uh, completely different backgrounds. Now, one of the things that is most visible that I, I see when we're working on these large systems is almost the, the org structure in the value stream. So I know that it's been said many times, but uh, one of the problems that we pretty much see on a regular basis isn't even just the fact that we do have these different functional organizations. It's that the organizations use different language, right? That actually evolve from the same type of thing. So if you look at program management, they focus heavily on lean and lean startup, which is which is great. And and you know, minimum viable products, we're we're really working towards those. But when I talk to folks in systems engineering, they're heavily focused on systems thinking, but not really realizing its its uh, inner relationship with lean. And then we move into you know systems design, and the design groups really focused on design thinking. You'll see number of workshops around the organization on design thinking. Again, looking at how to evolve a solution collaboratively with cross-functional perceptions. You get into the hardware and they talk about rapid prototyping. Really harkens back to a lot of the stuff that you've seen in industrial manufacturing and not realizing that that rapid prototyping really is pretty much close to their their brethren in software, which is agile development. So they're using that type of language. When I speak to tests, they're like, yes, we really need to get into shift left testing, right? They're all talking about shift left, but they don't realize about the rapid prototyping or the design thinking. And then when we get out to operations, you're starting to look at ITIL, you know, infrastructure management and, and technology business management. All of these things want to deliver capabilities at the speed of relevance and optimize the delivery. But each group has a different language to discuss it, and they don't realize that they're actually saying the same thing, which causes huge delays. This is before I even get into any of the technology-type handoffs that you're going to see. Yeah, so, so that that's fascinating. The way you present it, everyone is around the same goal, which is moving faster, delivering more relevant things to markets through the, you know, in this case, to missions um, and to systems faster. So, so you you do see them speaking the same language, though. There's that this is this is in the end all embodying lean, presumably, you know, small batches, iteration, flow, feedback, and such. Well, what I see is. They each have an intent, and if you were to abstract it up a level, I believe it's absolutely one and the same. But the people within the organizations have unique language. I don't believe they're speaking the same language. So when ITIL talks about, you know, the 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 different types of feedback loops, they think that's a completely separate thing than what Agile's referring to. 
so that's really interesting, right? Because I think thinking flow, thinking value streams, we know it's 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 one feedback loop that that has to cross mm -hmm. these silos. But I think th this is sort of the the common thinking and, and the common way of deploying design thinking, right? Is that design thinking is is deployed in design? Absolutely. So how, I guess how have you and you've come at this largely from and in terms of the way that you've helped help Lockheed and some of these programs transform largely from the agile and DevOps side of things. Yes, um, but the I guess the interesting thing about me and, and you could probably tell is I'm I'm hyper right. So I have not been in one organization and I don't know that I would have seen it if I had right. So during my tenure, I have been a program manager. I have been a test director. I have been a software engineer, a chief engineer. I have been in operations, primarily working in operations. So the fact that I got to go visit different areas because I like to see different parts of the system kind of clued me into the fact that we're actually really talking about the same thing. We just don't realize it. And so how is it, and can you just give us a little bit more depth because this is this really is a fascinating perspective. I've seen bits and pieces of this, but you know that's kind of the visuals that you paint of all these different groups trying so hard to move faster, speaking different languages, and only establishing a you know a flow and feedback loop within their silo, right? So, so just take us through, whether it's kind of the rapid prototyping or, or the design, I'm imagining that what you're seeing is that it's 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 very difficult to, to do design thinking where you don't have a sense of the software, or the capabilities of what you can actually deploy, how quickly, you know, what kind of user experiences you can even deliver on what kinds of devices while the team is rapidly prototyping something completely different in terms of a heads-up display or, or something else in another group. So so can you give us just, just some examples of this? Because I think that this is such a powerful visual, visual and so indicative of, of what we're seeing across you know, federal and commercial organizations. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, for example, working with one of the teams and, and you know, I, I tried to explain to them, you know, Agile for Hardware. Uh, this was years ago. I want to say probably 2007, 2008. And they're like, no, no. Robin, we know that Agile's for software. It's not used for anything else. And and I was like, okay, you know, let's step back. Tell me, tell me what it is that that you're going to do, right? So one of the things they had to do is to identify if they could put racks in space that you could put hand gloves in there. And I was like, okay, so how are you going to do that? Well, that's that's easy. We're we're developing a, a cardboard prototype and we created it the exact dimensions and we put our hands in there. And I'm like, Oh, so rapid, fast feedback, exactly if I was building software and writing a quick unit test and trying it out. I said, so the, the domain and the material is different, but the thought process is exactly the same. And I think we get so ingrained into that, that thought process, we can't, we can't see how it would apply to other things. The same thing in management. You know, we talk about uh, things like story mapping in Agile all the time. But if you go back to the 40s when they started program management type discussions, precedence diagramming. Well, precedence diagramming looks a whole lot like story mapping. Different language, same thing. So if I want to, and this is usually how I am able to work with our programs to, to make these large leaps, because to them, this is scary stuff, is to say, actually, I'm really just talking about precedence diagramming here. Oh, that's okay. We can we can do that. But the problem is if you're not aware 
of that language, if you haven't hopped around and seen these different types, you don't realize we're actually saying the same thing. And I think what you see is people grow up and they become managers and they're program managers. That's their number one job. They do that forever. So they don't actually ever see that in operations, this infrastructure technology ITIL is really looking at a lot of the same things in operations that they're doing when they're starting off their programs. And so because we have all of these amazing different capabilities and processes, we're not kind of coming back to that lean value stream where where they all are, right? They're all saying, hey, let's let's limit whip and work in progress. Let's really visualize our work from end to end. Let's create a connection between once I create my models, how do they flow into the software? And then once I create the software, how do I validate that it actually implemented the model, right? So, so what does that test look like? And primarily in order to deliver a solution, Right? And my customers care about solution. They care about when I'm going to deploy a satellite, when I'm going to uh, provide the, the next missile capability. They, they don't actually, even though they, they may think they do, care about how many lines of code I wrote or even how fast I wrote them. Um, because if I wrote them really fast, but the test team was off doing something else for another team, the customer doesn't actually get to realize that speed of delivery. So until we can really kind of um, develop that Rosetta Stone, that common language that we could use across so that people in operations know exactly what somebody in systems engineering is, is talking to and can relate it to something, it makes it very difficult to get products and services out the door rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, ever since we met five years ago, I think you, you and I have had this very similar perspective and been on the, on the same journey of, of helping organizations develop that common language. And I think the thing that I learned through this, and I think that you actually, um, you've got some amazing examples and insights on is that you know, some of these languages, they're there for a reason. The, the precedence diagramming, right? That evolved from something. It became its own language. People, you know, people started using it. It's the same. Story points became their own language. A cardboard prototyping is its own language. And as I've worked more closely with kind of different silos and different organizations, I've actually you know, developed this appreciation for the languages that they've developed, right? And the way that, that they vary, right? The way that, you know, ITIL teams operate services versus the way that SREs are, are working right now versus all of, all of the technical language and jargon that we see around modern cloud architectures. These things are really important languages for those teams to, to do what they do well. But there's just such, I guess the challenge is it's, it's back to, yeah, it's a Tower of Babel, right? Like we, we need some, we need some Rosetta Stone. Yeah, trans, a translation at this layer, not that they can't specialize, but a translation so that they know that they're not redoing the same thing. When I first started working um, Agile programs, and that was about 2002, here at Lockheed, we always get a, a requirements database, whether that's indoors or whether I get something you know, from a requirements document. But the first thing I did was I you know, decomposed all of those different requirements indoors. Okay. Then I was like, okay, so we're doing Agile now. We're going to have an Agile product backlog. So then I created the Agile product backlog. Epics, features, user stories. The first thing I ran into is a spaghetti mess because I had done all of the decomposition and requirements, and now I'm de doing all of the decomposition in scope and functionality. Well, 
Decomposition is decomposition. Pick a place, whether it be in your requirements tool or yeah. your product backlog, and do it once. Right. So from then on, after I, I managed, you know, that it was it was quite convoluted. I typically leave requirements pretty large within the requirements database mm-hmm. and do my decomposition in the backlog so that I can link across a requirement or a grouping of requirements directly to an epic and have one layer of decomposition. But that's a case of in the past, people thought of software engineers doing agile, systems engineers doing systems thinking. They're both doing decomposition. They're using different terminology and what that different that decomposition is, and we're causing double work. And yeah. not even just double work, we're making it very difficult to even interconnect with one another because of that double work. The yeah. same thing happens in modeling, right? So we build yeah. these model-based systems engineers, right? And or model-based prototypes, things of that nature, but often they're not connected to the directly to the software and the technology. So what's implemented doesn't actually come back and validate the model. The models get out of sync, but the models are the things that are used for things like design reviews. But now, you know, the the map doesn't match the terrain anymore. And so we try to make adjustments to, let's say, the software and the capabilities based upon what we see in the map. But because they're not really the same anymore, again, we cause additional rework. Yep. (laughs) He's like, I see it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm just just reflecting on my own journey with this because I think that Two key things you've said. I, I just started thinking that if, if we could just give everyone their own languages, right, and then somehow federate those, you know, synchronize yes. them and connect the different silos, that would be enough. But I think as you're noticing, it's it's helpful. We've mm-hmm. done some things together that, that have actually produced those results of, of connecting you know, connecting doors to product management and agile tools. It's it, it helps. But yeah. if you do it the wrong way, and I think you, you just shared a really really important insight, right? Like we've got, uh, I'm working with a number of organizations where sort of the, at the program requirements level, they actually need to decide a feature may be implemented in hardware or, in, or software. And until you get a little further down the experimentation or MVP or design thinking side, you don't even know, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're now, it's just such a great example that you're giving, you now feed out those requirements to all those teams who do all that duplicate work, none of it flows back to actually make a a sound decision on where we should do this, how we should do it. It's this tremendous amount of waste and duplicate work. So you're saying, I think, something that's really important, which is to understand where that decomposition of work needs to happen. And then, I guess, in the end, also to connect it back. You might learn something that... The the tricky thing I'm seeing as well is, you know, step one is what you said, and then you might learn something that decomposition, right? We'll never get that performance profile in in software. We actually need an FPGA here or whatever the learning might be. Exactly. And if we don't have that feedback loop, so I always figure the ideal. Now, this is just my ideal, is that you, you link your requirements database, which I think is the ask, the what do I want, to your product backlog. That is the scope. That's that's the how I think I'm going to do the work. Linking to the repository, right, that you're going to put that work into, whether that's, you know, a, a Git repository or whether it's a document repository, whatever mm-hmm. I'm building. 
and then linking that over to my automated test suite, which is then going to come back and feed back in to my backlog because that's against the scope, which then will trace back into that originating requirement. And I think if you link all of those tools and create some sort of mapping of the language, people would have that common understanding of the vision. You could remove a lot of that duplicate rework, which we do over and over again, and also remove a lot of the defects because of that duplicate work. I mean, a yeah. lot of times it's not some complex algorithm that's the problem. It's it's kind of down at the basics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I could not agree more, but I, I do think that your approach of thinking about it is where the work is decomposed uh, mm -hmm. is is actually a, a really important way to look at this this problem. And then the, the other thing I've noticed over the more recent years is back to your point on the common language. So I actually thought we could solve this, you know, connecting these systems, these different vocabularies, these different ways that people work and the way that they collaborate, they plan, they prototype, and they, they build systems. But then what I realized is that that wasn't enough because we ended up seeing these organizations over and over who seemed to be doing all the right things, followed some of what you, you just said right now. But where they were ending up was that they had, you know, it's in the end, it's all these local optimizations within silos, right? Where mm -hmm. the agile team was doing great. <laughs> the design team was doing great. The hardware team was was producing amazing things that executives were just, just thrilled to see and how, how cool those could be. But like you said, the end-to-end -end time of delivery was was unknown and it just felt too slow and it was it, it was not that thing being optimized all it was just what you know we now know are well, for manufacturing it's the cycle times within those each of those silos that you described that were being optimized so my my view on this i'd love to get your reflections on this is in the whole you know point of the the flow framework and the flow metrics is we need to establish a, a minimal common vocabulary, right? Those those languages in each of the silos are important, but we need to think about not just, just the cycle time of how long it took us to prototype or, or to release some software put, and push some updates, but we always need to have a, a separate language that's you know that's oriented about how the value we've delivered. So flow time, the, the time to value, is everyone needs to understand. And What's your, I guess, how have you been approaching this? Because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's how you think, it's how you've inspired me to think. When we're trying to get people to think of these end-to-end -end value streams of, of what, what was it? You had that great line, the living value, the speed of relevance. The, the speed of relevance is, is this. So, so potentially if I'm, if I'm Netflix, right? And I, I'm not, but Netflix, right? They're, they're updates every second. And that's, that's perfect because that's mm -hmm. what they need. But let's say I want to make a deployment to a, a weapon system like Aegis. Well, there's actually a lot of different things that I need to do to make that update. That being said, I've also got multiple different ships with different hardware on them. So speed of relevance for Aegis could be an update every three to six months because I've got to train mm -hmm. people on on that new capability i have to update a series of documents right there's a there's a huge amount of work for that deployment so speed of relevance is as fast as your customer can consume and that is valuable to them versus everybody's like we need continuous deployment well for some of my customers that would cause an overload. And, and actually, they wouldn't be able to close on their missions because they were spending all of their time trying to learn the new products that I was pushing to them. Yeah, I think it's exactly. I think this is the, we've been, we've had this obsession in our industry around deploys per day, right? Mm -hmm. and, and these kinds of metrics, because they worked for a certain class of complex systems that some of which you yeah. just described, right? I think the whole point of thinking of 
through product value streams is you define, uh, and, and I think this is a better term now that I use in my book, that you define the speed of relevance or in the flow metrics, the flow time for each value stream. And mm -hmm. that's what you go for, right? And, and if you're below that, you know, that's great. In, you no longer, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. that can be, the, you know, the examples I've given is we've got extremely, extremely innovative organizations. You know, some of the tech giants, they have these large SAP systems underneath still, right? The speed of yeah. relevance on those systems is, is quite a bit slower than their uh, mean time to repair if something goes out on the public APIs, right? So even in these, the most innov innovative organizations we think of, each value stream has an understood speed of, uh, you know, speed of relevance. And if it's getting too long, then you look where to shorten it. So, but if you want to, if you want to speed it up, like the natural inclination is just to speed it up. So you're adding resources, you're adding waste because you're hmm. putting more resources to speed it up to actually sit it on, on a, a you know, countertop somewhere before somebody can actually use it. So really making sure, you know, coming back to Don Reinertson's principles of product development flow, that, you know, load equals, you know, the, the delivery speed there. Don't go faster than you have to because, you know, you're just spending more money and more time, but you're not getting more value. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the and and this I think what we've seen happen across organizations just the amount of investment in in agile teams in many places are more advanced a lot of investment in DevOps and release automation, but but the wait states are no longer there right yet the investment continues to yep. help those teams go faster whereas the bottleneck is is upstream of them or downstream in, in compliance or security or something of that sort so absolutely in terms of you know, my what what I've been trying to it's it's it's, uh, it's the start of 2021 you know how I've been trying to help organizations is is just to make that visible that's it right just just to make the flow time visible to make the web visible where it's queuing up to make the wait states visible and the like right with through through the yep. flow load and, and such and with my teams you're actually helping these organizations improve, right? And, and uh, whereas the goal of the flow framework is just to have this defined, measurable, and have brilliant people like yourself structure the improvements, the experiments, the things that will actually get that speed of relevance down to what it needs to be. How are you approaching helping these programs actually have this perspective? Because one of the biggest, as you're reflecting on, as, as you're saying, the problem I continue seeing, which is exactly the opposite of the way Donald Reinerson wants us to see the world, which is kind of end-to-end -end customer centric, you know, life cycle mm -hmm. profitability. How are you helping change this thinking? Are you are you getting people to, to start thinking a common in common lean terms? Because in the end, these are these, you know these go back to lean, lean principles. But when you engage with this, these teams, let let's just assume you, all of a sudden you can get them to sort of you know measure where the bottlenecks are. It looks like the bottleneck is in in this duplicate work that's being done between hardware and software because they 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 both decompose the same thing. How do you get people to change their thinking? And and is it easy? <laughs> oh, is it easy? No, <laughs> no I think we I think we I think we know that it's not, right? Um, you know, I uh, I think the first thing is is people have developed a mental model based upon what they've learned in their careers or their their lives, right? So you can't just change that overnight. The easiest way that I've found to make change and to convince people is to actually use their language. So one of the benefits that I was able to bring to the table, because honestly, I was a software developer, but if you were to say, was I the best software developer you ever had? No, there were better software developers. I was always like, wow, I, I wish I could code that fast. Or if you look at, you know, was I the most proficient tester? Um, you know, I'm 
pretty good at a lot of things, but I was never awesome at one thing. But the one thing I have been able to bring to the table is by visiting these different areas, by 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 being interested in in how all of the system works, I have been able to learn the different lingo from management versus systems engineering versus talking to the hardware engineers versus talking to electronics and firmware. And when I'm talking to somebody, I use their language, right? So I internalize what what the core concept is and use in their language. When we talk about things like the, you know, people want to know in management, at least in, in a lot of our government programs, what's critical path? Well, critical path is the soonest that I can get something done. So we're just laying out dependencies. And s- systems engineers really understand the pain of dependencies, right? So that's how you're going to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to to test, right, it's pretty easy to say beginning with the end in mind actually reduces the number of tests you have to create, right? If I begin mm-hmm. with what the outcome is, the answer to the test question, then I can get there. So I think part of the benefit I bring is actually being able to see this cross view and and almost be a translator because a lot of times uh, people are scared. You know, the first thing they would say is, Robin, we build safety critical systems. Uh, Agile, that's, you know, that's just fast development. And when you walk them through what Agile really is, which is basically empirical planning, the scientific method, evaluation, right, from my hypothesis, trying something out and validating it back and iterating, they get that, mm-hmm. right? We try to make things sound too tough, too complex, which then makes it sound like that's going to be a huge uphill battle. And that has allowed me to be really successful. You can't tell people it has to go this way because I said so. You can't tell them, hey, just listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. None of that works. You have to appeal to where they are and their mental model and let them visualize it in their terms. Yeah, I think there's something so profound to that is is, is helping people use their language, right? It, it, it gets them bought in and it helps them understand that these are the, the same concepts. And I've, I've noticed this, so I wonder what your take on this will be. Interesting effect when you start doing that, because once you start using their language, you can start saying, okay, well, wh- where's where are you getting stuck, right? Where is your bottleneck? And then all of a sudden, you know, you're saying that to someone putting out an MVP. It's like, well, this, the software's not moving fast enough. Well, you need you need flow between you and the software teams or the hardware, the prototyping teams. We're, we're still waiting on them. Well, meanwhile, the hardware team says, well, we're still waiting on the, the design, the specification, the, the business anal- the analysis that we need for this. And we've been waiting for four weeks and the meeting got rescheduled three times. So there's this natural pull I find each of the silos has to, because they all want to deliver value faster and they have upstream and downstream dependencies. And if we, if we can actually show them where, where things get stuck, where queues are too big and you know where you've got... You know, these these long wait states. It is it is pretty. Uh, my experience is it's pretty amazing how quick the buy in to this more end to end. Oh yeah, is. it definitely. So I can tell you about this this old case. Um, so I want to say probably it, 2005 2006, and I was working you know this mission critical program, but but primarily for uh, sustainment operations. And like I said, I am. 
very curious, very nosy. I want to see how things work. And, um, you know, my primary job is to develop these patches and then they would deploy these patches into operations to, to make certain things happen. I created this patch and the first thing I did is run down to what they call the racetrack to, to visualize it, see, see what happened in operations. But when I got there, um, I saw an engineer updating my patch. I was like, what, what you doing? Why, why are you doing that? He said, oh, I just have to make it work in operations. Oh, so we know that that's a simple, you know, environment statement at the front to say where I'm at and setting my paths, right? So he's just updating the paths, which you'd say is, doesn't take very long, you know, maybe right. five, 10 minutes. Uh, but keep in mind that I was an engineer within a cube of 400 engineers whose entire jobs were building patches. And there was an entire set of teams down in operations that would update our patches to work in operations. You know, I, I gave it a try. I was like, oh, this is what you need. And I went back and I started putting that at the front of anything I did, right? At the front of all my code. Mm -hmm. And people were like, oh, she's really fast. Her patches always go in fast. So, you know, she must be an amazing developer. Like I said, I was, I was never the best developer. I was good. It had nothing to do with that. It's because I knew what was the next step in that value stream. And it resulted in my patches going in, I want to say 75% faster. Like people would come right. to me specifically because they like, Robins will go in first. <laughs> and, and, and the reason Robins will go in first is because they didn't need somebody to just make a quick update to make it work in operations. Now, anybody three tiers up would never see that. They wouldn't. Right. They would not realize that. But the amount of delay that just mm -hmm. something like that costs is amazing. And so, by simply doing nothing other than being curious to see what the next person had to do with my product, changed the game. Right? I I see that time and time again across the board when I'm working on models. What What are you going to do with this model? How are you going to put it into the digital twin? Oh, well, if you have to do that, then this is how mm -hmm. I'm going to set it up. It changes how you build if you know how somebody else is going to use it. That's amazing. So, so this amazing level of systems of systems thinking that you've achieved all came from you selfishly wanting to get your patches out faster. Yeah, I just, I'm nosy <laughs> and, and I'm nosy. People will tell you. I'm, I'm curious. I want to know what's going on. I'm the first person to ask why. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and that's exactly what we need to do, right? Is to, is to elevate a, you know, the people who who can think mm -hmm. that way, who realize, okay, just just with you know, two percent extra effort of, of mine here, the flow in time to value is going to re reduce, you know, tremendously. Uh, the flow will increase, and time to value will reduce tremendously. So, and I guess somehow to make it, the thing about systems is we we need to make these things visible systemically as well, right? Because mm -hmm. we can't rely on there were another 399 people who had not come to this conclusion as quickly as you had, right? So, and this this goes back to this this thing that you've told me repeatedly that's been haunting me since you told me. You you, you said to me, we, we we know these things, right? The people listening to this podcast are going to just be nodding their head as as you're saying some of these <laughs> things. So so back to the, to quote you directly is if everybody is saying it, why aren't we doing it, right? Why why is it that so eloquently stated why this is so important? It's just one small example, right? And if you pile on these kinds of improvements and look for these constraints. You can bring complex systems of systems to market 
five or 10 times faster. And that, that's a really, really profound statement. So, and with a profound impact, given that this is, I know this research question has been on your mind with, with you working on your thesis. If everybody's saying it, why aren't we doing it? Give us more color yeah. on, on, on that, just on that question itself. I, I, I've been really working, you know, anybody who's been working on their dissertation, they know you come up with your top 10 questions and then you try to narrow them down. And it's been really difficult because you're supposed to develop new knowledge, right? New material that hasn't been developed before. And the more research I do, the more I see that these cool ideas are everywhere, right? I have done, you know, a lot of uh, research and reading on digital engineering, a number of papers on model-based engineering, agile, DevOps, DevSecOps, across the board. And they're all saying the same things, mm -hmm. which then led me to go back in, you know, because I, I work uh, as a government contractor. The first thing I did is say, okay, so has, have we always known this in the government? And I went back a few years to, to read different Defense Innovation Board papers, which is, you know, a, a commercial board to bring innovation to the government. And the, the interesting thing is there was a, a a paper that came out in 2018 from the Defense Innovation Board saying, we need to change how we build software. And there was actually a very similar paper that said the same thing in early 2000s. And then another very similar paper at the end of the 1980s. And so in my head, I was thinking, we keep saying the same thing. It looks like even across the board, people are coming to the, the same conclusions. Why aren't people implementing them? And I think it's too easy to say, oh, they're being stubborn or mm -hmm. it's change or it's hard. There's something there. I, I don't know what it is, but there's something there that's causing us not to buy in and make these fundamental changes that would make our lives easier and allow us to deliver products and services faster. Yeah. And uh, you know, I came at it as interesting. With, uh, for me, it was, a, it was a really similar question, right? There's given given that, and I'd say some organizations. Well, first of all, my perspective was some teams have mastered the right ways of doing it in, in incredible ways. They're able to bring more value to market than an entire organization. And I got that for me that that was a very um, a very visceral thing because I learned it through open source, right? And it was like it just. It was mind-blowing to me that when I was coming from open source and then in my thesis studying large organizations, software organizations, like it and I was doing the productivity master, it's like, is it really true that this this team of six loosely collected individuals working on Tomcat or um or or Kubernetes or, or you know or, or something else that this this open source project can deliver more usable value to market than an organization of a thousand people like this can't be true but those are with the right kind of uh, systems thinking you you start realizing well when you get stack all those impediments and all, all that slowness and you fix all those things, you really can get to 10x, 100x, in some cases, 1,000x the levels of, of flow of value. And then like you, in studying, I, for me, it was, it was when I was write, writing the project, the project, I was like, okay, I, I just kept realizing that I needed to read books I hadn't read, that, that I skimmed or <laughs> looked at a presentation or whatever I'd done. So I ended up reading, it was, must have been a couple dozen books actually through the course of mm -hmm. writing the books. Like, it, and I had the same conclusion as you. These, these are fundamentally saying the same thing. 
and then can somehow it interestingly they actually all do point back to Don Reinerston, but that's a that's another story. And of course, you know, his work builds on lean and Gene can point me at re-engineer re the co corporation. There's the same core here. So I think your your research question is the question that I think we should all be answering ourselves as we're trying to help our organizations in, in 2021, is given we know the practices. As I and you know, this was the question I posted Don on the on the panel that we did together with Dean and Gina at the Global Safe Summit. Like, given you actually gave us the practices many years ago now, is maybe the bottleneck really is us applying those and us and then I think Robin, the you're saying some key things that that I think I want us to understand better and to take away is that you're somehow implying that the lack of this common language is it, it's somehow related to the fact that. The practices are known, they're being practiced in silos, but but they're not being practiced end to end. So do you think that's one of the reasons that the no common language is that is that what, one of the things that your research question is going to unveil? Well, it's going to I, it's one of the things that I'm going to research. I don't know, but from an anecdotal visual, I've seen us do the same thing like decomposition in multiple places because we didn't realize somebody else was was doing that as well and we had called it a different name i was uh chatting with a, a you know a new program they were bringing on a consultation for a a consultant company to do agile management for the program and i said well we're already implementing agile you know you you can but do you do you need a separate consultant to do the agile management and they're like oh you're working on the technical robin we we need to understand how you manage the program which comes back to fundamentally they don't realize that actually scrum entirely a management methodology. It happens time and time again. Another funny story was over in the UK, they, they really wanted to get their entire team ready for uh, being able to implement Agile. They trained all of the program managers on DSDM. They trained all of the teams on Scrum. Again, we just know they're two different flavors of Agile. But if I'm in program management versus software engineering, I think that Scrum is the way to go for software, but you know, over in the UK, they hear a lot about DSDM in management. It's it's a language thing, and not necessarily you know a step back at, to be able to make sure we're all on the same page. Because if we're speaking different languages, it's just like you know that canoe. I go, I've gone canoeing with my family, and they always do it wrong. I'm doing it right, obviously, right? So when you row <laughs> at a different speed in a different way, there's one thing that happens. You just go around in the circle, right? Unless we're all going in the same direction at the same cadence. And so if we can't create that common language, I feel like we're spending a lot of time in the circle before we actually get to the goal. Yep, and yeah, and obviously, if that even if that common cadence is slower than your cadence, Robin, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the goes straighter and faster. So I think the, the interesting thing is that you know, we we are seeing you know some others doing it. Your story, yep. you know, doing things the right way. Your story of these patches. Can you your, your recent story on the, you know the Kubernetes on a U two? So how do you find those examples of of these things working again? Because I think there's. My challenge is when organizations make all the and and leaders within organizations and then different functions within organizations make all these excuses that no that won't work here and then of course you break through that saying well the language you're actually using is the language of agile is the language of lean maybe and I think your unique approach is that I'm going to stop forcing you know My agile <laughs> down your throat I'll actually <laughs> adopt to, yeah. to the language that you're using which I think is 
much more successful than forcing Agile and DevOps terms down people's throats. I've, I've certainly experienced failed attempts of me trying to do that. So tell us a bit about the, kind of the, the successful examples that you've seen, like, like the, where it has worked, it has broken through a barrier. Oh, it's it's been amazing. Like again, the it wasn't it wasn't my feat, but the aeronautics team put together Kubernetes clusters for the U2. You know, it came out of one program manager saying, "Well, what if?" Right? Because typically people are like, "No, no, no, we already know how this works. Just yep. leave well enough alone." He's just, what if? And um, by doing that, one of the the things that they realized is, you know, the the deployment was just so much faster like they could make changes and get a deployment out which which we all know but that's that's new for them the processing and data power because of the cluster was such that they'd never had that much data before which allowed them to do different things with the mission than they'd ever thought of and and the program manager told me he goes it's like breathing new life into the u2 because a lot of these programs a lot of these uh you know, large complex system systems, they're not brand new. They've been around for 20, 30 years, right? So being able to take something and breathe new life into it and get new value out of it is huge. The only thing that we can do is say, what if, and keep working with the next program? Could we do this? If you can't, why not? You know, ask, ask the question, and once you start asking the question, I think you see amazing results. Um, we've had a number of our IRADs doing doing the same thing. They're like, oh, actually, you know what? It used to take us, and it, it did, no kidding, <laughs> months and months to get a, an environment out for this brand new team. I had another team get one in a matter of hours. They were like, how is that even possible? Like, to them, it was magical. Like, is that even possible? You know, they had thought of, well, I need to purchase hardware and then I need to image the hardware and then I need to put, you know, the different tools on it and I need to integrate it, right? This all takes time as opposed to, I have an AWS image that you can use today on somebody else's hardware. It's not rocket science to us, but when people see it and experience it, they've just, it's amazing, right? Okay. It's just allowed to deliver amazing. So what if, and then and then those successes, right? Because the other thing that you're saying is, is the people who have trouble you know, seeing this, that there's a different, better way that's, that's this transformative and that, that allows completely different, a completely different space of outcomes. So the, the guidance you're giving us is, is do the what if, which will then cause new ways of looking and working and focusing on value. And then, I guess in the end, sh showcase the outcome of this new way of doing it. Definitely. Showcase those short-term wins. That always uh, you know, creates a, a huge amount of momentum. Me and you have talked a little bit about the different software factories in, in uh, the DoD space that the, that the uh, Air Force really pushed. And in 2018, you had Kessel Run. You had one of those software factories. There's about... 30 to 40, they, they, to me, they feel like popcorn poppers. They're popping up all over the place where they're building mission-critical capabilities. And the knowledge of what they were able to achieve on Castle Run and being able to share that really resulted in that momentum of being able to get those others. So showcasing those short-term wins is huge. Even if you yourself, and I've found this myself, don't believe that it was a huge win, sharing that with, with others who are not used to thinking this way all of a sudden creates you know, a, a, a train in itself. 
Yeah, and for anyone, I think I think that's so key, right? And and Brian Kroger, one of the visionaries of Kessel Run, he in a previous uh, edition of this podcast, he he went through that. He went through how they thought about that win, you know, very similar to your YouTube story, enable continue capabilities, and then the, just the power of showcasing that. So I think it is as people look to you know into their plans for this year, create, figure out what what that what if is, and figure out what that showcase is. Because I think in the end, we have to break through the the wine you know, people not doing it they're not having the right structure organizational structure in place measuring structure managerial program structure and and i think you're giving us a a pattern for doing that so robin i guess the, the other thing i'm taking from this is is that as that happens right as you've created that what you've done the what if you've created the the existence proof the proof point we, we can do this even i think that the youtube example is so extreme so if you can do if you can do you, you can actually prove that on youtube it, anyone listening can probably prove that on, on their own masses of legacy and, and older systems and the, the different things that they're struggling with the, the other thing that i think is so valuable that i've seen working on these things is is showcasing that with a common language and a language that resonates with the people that you need to impact to change the structure and dynamics of, of the organization right so to say we brought this you know, to market this much faster, right? By actually you know, giving this team the space to build this and reducing their flow load, reducing their whip, they were able to innovate faster than we've ever seen in this organization by allowing them to use modern web and cloud technologies like you know, the, the AWS images you're talking about, you know, serverless. Uh, they were actually, they're, they're showing us how we can scale this uh, within our organization. So I think the other thing I'm I'm hearing is that just to make sure to present that in not the language of, you know, we were able to stand up the, the I don't know the the Kubernetes cluster that much more quickly, but we were able to to deliver value at the speed of relevance, and and that's what you've been asking for all this time. And let's let's scale that out in the back half of 2021. Absolutely. Don't 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 focus so much on the inputs, uh, which I know I am not the inventor of the statement. Focus on the outcomes that you're able to achieve, and by using that language with those those um, stakeholders, I think you can accomplish so much more than trying to give them buzzwords and cool new things to try out. Excellent. Well, Robin, this this has been this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your stories with us. Any other uh, last things that you want to mention in terms of getting getting people pointed in the right direction as they map their course through the year? You know, I, the the only other thing I would leave you with is you can tell that one of the common themes in my stories is is asking why or or being curious. And I know that that's a, a common thing, but but be curious, ask why. Just just because you think you know it and you've known it for 20 years, think about what could be. And and because of that, because technology's changed so much or we have these new ideas or there's all these enablers out there, you may be able to achieve things that, that couldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. Amazing. Well, Robin, thank you so, so much. And uh, I will be following your uh, your research closely. <laughs> so. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Bye. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. A huge thank you to Robin for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project to Product. You can reach out to Robin on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.